Matthew 13, if you want to follow along in verse number 31. It says, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable, verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Let's skip down to verse number 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this scripture again. Thank you for the, the, the vivid images that you give us, Lord Jesus, through your teaching. Uh, it's, it, it amazes me uh, just how much you put into this and uh, what a master teacher you are, although maybe it shouldn't amaze us because because of who you are. But thank you for, for coming to earth and being a teacher and an example and the Savior who is our substitute and our ransom and our sacrifice. Thank you for all of this. And I uh, pray that we would be able to see uh, the growth and the value of your kingdom that you point to through these words and that we would be able to learn from it and live differently according to what we learn from this. And that the Holy Spirit would show us what we need to hear from the scripture this morning. Uh, Lord, we come to you and your word because we have no other source. And uh, as we look at just this little chunk this morning, would you open our hearts and minds uh, to drink deeply from the well that we find here. And we pray that you would be glorified, but that you would teach all of us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these four parables that we read this morning, they deal with the growth and the value of God's kingdom. Uh, as we saw, they're separated in the chapter by the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds, but these two sets of parables, they really fit together quite nicely. Um, as I was thinking about these concepts, the concepts of growth and the concept of value, um, the idea of investment came to mind this week, uh, not because I'm a, a great investor or I'm a, I'm a financial wizard, I am not uh, at all, and my wife would tell you that I am certainly not a financial wizard, um, but I do think about at least investments, and you may or may not be much of a, a stock trader or an investor yourself, um, but there are many people who are kicking themselves at this point in life because they did not invest in a certain company or certain companies when they were younger, when they were at the onset. Uh, for instance, and I had to look these things up because, again, I'm not an expert here, but uh, you've all heard of the company Apple. Some of you might have products made by that company. Well, if you had invested $1,000 in the company Apple back in 2001 when the first uh, iPod came out and you didn't touch that money, today you would have a little over $400,000 from that one investment. You've also probably heard of the company Amazon. Uh, some of you use that online shopping company to buy things. We have Amazon boxes, I joke, that come to our house almost every day. 
And uh, I, I think the UPS driver, the FedEx driver would wonder if something happened to us if they didn't come one day. Uh, but that's, I'm just joking. I, I pick on Lizzie about that. But uh, back in 1997, kind of at the onset of Amazon, if you had invested again, $1,000 in Amazon and not touched it until today, then today that $1,000 would be worth a little over $1.3 million. Now, let me reassure you, I'm not speaking from experience on either one of those investments. Uh, I don't have either one of those numbers in my investment accounts. Um, and I wasn't thinking much about investing in the stock market in 1997 because I was only five years old. So that didn't help me much. But the idea of investment in value or growth and potential value, those are things that are familiar to us in many ways. And we can understand and grasp onto those concepts when it comes to tangible and immediate things like our finances. But what about the growth and the value of God's kingdom? Because that's what we're talking about this morning. Well, back up to last week, we talked a little bit about how perhaps the, the underlying question um, that was being asked was, why isn't the kingdom taking off quicker? And Jesus answered that question by talking about the kingdom as a process of, of being planted and also the idea of, of the enemy's work as well. Well, in these parables that we're going to look at today, he keeps answering those questions, and the answers seem to be in those two main things, growth and value. But it's even a little further than that because it's not just growth and value. It's, it's small beginnings, growing from a small beginning, and then the idea of hidden value. Amazon and Apple, those companies were, were both these kind of upstart companies that started in a garage or in a really inconspicuous ways, and they were unknown to most people, but now they're household names across the world. Certainly, some people took a risk back then, and they've become very wealthy because of that, but most people had no idea and wouldn't have ventured anything on those two companies. But when it comes to the kingdom, we aren't talking about the same kind of risk, of investment. In fact, we're not really talking about the same kind of investment at all. If Jesus' followers were thinking at this point in his teaching, kind of at the middle of his ministry, things were starting even to go downhill a little bit. The, the controversy with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, was at its height. They were probably wondering, is this going to work out? Is this, is this going to go anywhere? Does this have any legs? Is it, is it going to move forward? Well, if that was the question, then the answer that Jesus gives in these parables is yes. And before we jump back into them, we can make a little bridge to application for us because we're reading these parables from the other side of things, not the total other side. We're not at the end yet, but we're reading them after a lot of what would happen to prove these parables has already taken place. The growth of God's kingdom and the value of it maybe is, is even more visible to our eyes than it was to the apostles. But we're still prone to ask questions like, is it worth it? Is the life of following Jesus worth it? Is, as he said, taking up your cross worth it? And in the same way, the answer that these parables would give to that question for us is yes, it is worth it. Just a couple of scriptures 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says that this light, our light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
So that's one way of looking at it. It's the now versus then. There's something coming that's worth it. But it's not just the now versus then. Peter talks about this in, in 1 Peter 1.8, where he says about Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So it's worth it in the sense that something better is coming, yes, but it's also worth it in the sense that there's more than meets the eye right now. The joy that is inexpressible and full of brightness and glory of God is something that we can possess even now. So as we look at these parables, we'll see this. Jesus shows us that while the kingdom of heaven may appear to have small beginnings and a hidden value, it's a kingdom with a big future and a worthwhile endeavor. So let's start with those first two parables in verses 31 through 33. And we'll see these two parables which have to do with growth. As we read those, you probably noticed that Jesus comes back to the imagery of of planting. He says, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed or planted in his field. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of of mustard seed, a grain of mustard seed, or more simply, it's, it's, it's like a mustard seed. Now, mustard plants are not that common here in Vermont, at least not the kind that Jesus and his disciples would have been familiar with. But in fact, they might have been looking at them at that very time. They were pretty popular then. They were cultivated, still are, uh, for the spice that they would have gotten from them. And they would have been planted in a garden with other edible plants or, or, or herbs or plants for making spices. Now, this is a very simple parable. We don't have an explanation from Jesus on this one. I don't know if he ever gave an explanation, but maybe he assumed we didn't need one because it is quite simple. A man sows the mustard seed in his field or in his garden. And there are two operative parts of this parable. The fact that the mustard seed was sown, and then the fact that it grows into a large tree. Again, we've seen sowing already in both of the previous parables that we looked at, both the parable of the sower and then the parable of the wheat and the tares. The first was the word of God being sown in the hearts of men, and you had the different kinds of soils or different kinds of hearts. And the second was the sons and daughters of the kingdom being sown throughout the world. But this time, the image of sowing is, again, a little bit different. This time, the kingdom is the mustard seed that is sown in the garden, and it grows to great heights. There are two questions that are asked all the time about this parable. Uh, Some people ask them just out of curiosity. Some people even ask to doubt or ridicule, so we shouldn't ignore them. The first is the statement that the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds. And it has been pointed out many times that if Jesus was speaking scientifically about all the seeds in the world that existed, then technically that statement is not correct because it's been pointed out that there are smaller seeds than the mustard seed. Did Jesus know that there were smaller seeds? Well, I'm sure that he did uh, because he created them. So was he being purposefully misleading here to make a point? I don't think so. 
I think the idea here is that the seeds and the plants are in this garden that's being cultivated. And of all the seeds being planted for food in that garden, the mustard seed was of the smallest ones. It's just the idea that it's a very, very small seed, perhaps the smallest one that would have been commonly planted for food at that time. There were seeds for flowers that were smaller, but Jesus wasn't talking about a flower in this parable. He was talking about a plant that started incredibly small. In fact, the mustard seed, most people believe it was the smallest unit of weight that could be measured on a balancing scale. It was commonly understood as as the smallest of things. So he used the mustard seed. Now, the other question that comes up is not only the size of the seed, but is a mustard plant really a tree? Well, the mustard plants that we see in the United States typically don't reach the size of trees, um, although they do grow incredibly quickly. In one growing season, they can grow several feet easily. But the plants that Jesus and his disciples would have had in mind often did reach the height of trees. If you do a little research on botanical websites and gardening websites, you'll find it's common knowledge that these kinds of mustard plants grow easily to 12 or 13 feet and sometimes up to 25, even 30 feet in height. And the crown of these plants is typically as wide as they are tall. So it was very possible that you could have had multiple of these mustard plants that were 20 feet tall and with a 20-foot crown, which is certainly large enough to be in the minds of the disciples and the other hearers as they heard this parable. And it certainly is large enough for the birds, as Jesus said, to land in the branches and even build nests in them. So the picture is the smallest of seeds grows into the largest plant in the whole garden. The kingdom then, Jesus says, would start out small and minuscule. But from its inconspicuous beginnings, it would grow to considerable size. Now, he also mentions this idea of the birds. He says says in verse number 32, that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Sometimes in my study, things are very clear. There's Everybody's in agreement about what something means. Well, if you read a lot of books, which sometimes is helpful and sometimes gets you in trouble, more people argue about what these birds are than about anything else I've ever read of. And uh, I'll be honest, uh, this is one of those weeks where I don't think I came to a conclusion. But let me give you a couple ideas and uh, at least something we can take away from it. Um, the main takeaway, I think, is that the birds are not the main point of this parable. Um, If you put the two together, the mustard seed and the next one we're going to look at, the main points of these parables is the growth, is the spread. I think the birds really are just an illustration of the kind of spread. He's talking about a mustard plant that is big enough for birds to put their nests in. So it's big, it's sturdy. But we can connect a little bit, at least the idea of a kingdom as a plant, which is big enough or has grown to a certain size where the others on the outside can come into it or find shade in it. For instance, back in the book of Daniel, in Daniel 4.12, Daniel is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar about his kingdom. And he says, its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. The same idea is used 
just in a, one book over in Ezekiel about the kingdom of Assyria. And Ezekiel was prophesying about the fall of Assyria, but before their fall, he was talking about its greatness. And he said similar things. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young. And under its shadow lived all the great nations. In those two places, if you do a little more reading in context, you find that the idea of the birds dwelling in the branches of those nations were these other nations or other people groups that were benefiting from the size, the growth, the magnificence of those kingdoms, both Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom in Babylon and the Assyrian kingdom. So with that in mind, we can imagine at least how Jesus might have been referring to the kingdom of God in that manner. In the disciples' eyes, there was insignificant and minority at that time. But Jesus knew it wouldn't always be that way. There would be incredible growth to God's kingdom, so much so that others from all the nations would find at least some sort of respite and peace in the kingdom. Now, the debate comes about whether these birds are actually in the kingdom or if they're just benefiting from it, and that's not worth splitting hairs over. But it does bring up an interesting idea, because if the kingdom of God is a a microcosm or a, a representation of God's rule, even here and now, there should be a sense in which the world around benefits from the presence of God's kingdom and the common grace that comes from it. And I would say that that has happened to some extent. Followers of Jesus around the world have not been the only ones, but have certainly been a good part of the share of people who have started hospitals and orphanages and shelters and food banks. Christians have come up with world-changing inventions and ideas. They've developed resources and provided services. Even in our own community, this happens, that benefit countless people. And many of those people never enter into the kingdom of God, yet they're sheltered in the branches, so to speak. And some do enter, truly. Some do go, to borrow from another, the other parable, some do go from being a weed to wheat. But in benefiting from what God is doing among his people, then people get a glimpse, a little taste of God's righteousness and of his goodness. And wasn't that the promise all along? All throughout the Old Testament, there are images and pictures of the nations praising the Lord, not just Israel, but the nations. And Psalm 117 is one of those where it says, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. There's this idea all throughout scripture that God's goodness and glory will be spread about so that people from everywhere will see his praiseworthiness. And if we skip to the end, we'll see that that's the goal. In the book of Revelation, a few places speak like this, but Revelation 7 verse 9 says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. This idea of people from all the nations worshiping, and how did they come to do that? Well, it's because God kingdom, God's kingdom had spread from a tiny seed to being a giant plant 
big enough for the birds of the air to build their nests within. We could keep expounding on that perhaps, but I think the simple point has been made. And it brings us to the second parable then in verse number 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till all was leavened. The image shifts now from farming to baking, although there's there's certainly a tie here because uh, the crop in the second parable last week was wheat. And of course, wheat is ground into fine flour and used to make dough and bread. So Jesus hasn't strayed far from these common pictures. And uh, of course, he does that because everybody understands these things. Two years ago or two and a half years ago now, when the pandemic first began, um, I, like many of you, found myself incredibly bored at home. Uh, work was shut down for about 10 weeks. We didn't have anything to do. None of the stores were open. We were supposed to be locked down or whatever. And uh, of all the skills that I could have learned to do and better myself, the one that for some reason ended up finding me was I learned how to make bread. Now, I didn't become a master bread maker, but I did grab probably two or three different recipes and learned how to make uh bread and bagels and pizza dough and English muffins and a few other things. And uh, it was the first time in my life that I had ever really experienced working of dough and specifically the rising of dough. My mom always made bread, but I was never interested in the making, just the eating of it. Uh, Now, in our day and age, most people, to get their dough to rise, simply use instant yeast. In certain translations in this passage, you might even have the word yeast. But the word yeast is not yeast as we think of it. It's it's leaven. And leaven, in the vast majority of all cases, was what we would think of as a bread starter. A bread starter. You might keep a bread starter at home. A few people still do that. I tried it for a while, but I didn't make the bread often enough. And I would forget to feed the starter and, and take out the right amount of it and keep it going. So it, it didn't work out for me. But for the Jewish people... They knew all about these bread starters. In fact, oftentimes a little morsel of bread starter would be one of the first gifts that a young Jewish girl would receive at her wedding, a piece of the starter that her mom and grandmother had been using for for years and years and years. It was a tie to her family past, but it also was a gift for her future because she would then make thousands of loaves of bread, beginning with that little morsel of bread starter. And thousands of loaves of bread is not an exaggeration because there was fresh bread made every day except for the Sabbath day. In every home, the process was repeated day after day. So this image was clear to those listeners. Wheat was ground into fine flour, the flour mixed with water, maybe a little salt. The dough made and a little bit of that bread starter was kneaded into the dough and it would begin to rise. And that's the image in this parable. Now, again, there's a little bit of a question, exactly what is this leaven? Because there are parts of Scripture that speak of leaven in a negative sense. They speak of it as the the spread of sin or as the the old ways of our former past. But I don't think that's the way this parable is to be understood. Thinking of leaven here as, as sin or as something bad kind of flips the normal reading of this on its head. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, and Luke records it the exact same way. So the straightforward reading is that the kingdom is the leaven in this passage. 
Anything else, I think, is a stretch of what he actually says. And also, while leaven is sometimes used as a picture of sin or evil in the scripture, it's less an actual picture of the sin and more an idea of the spread, because that's what leaven does. It rises and spreads through the lump of dough. It's a picture of something that permeates. When the Israelites left Egypt, they were in a hurry, and they didn't make leavened bread. It didn't have time to rise, so they made unleavened bread. And there's a feast that celebrates that, even to this day. But they were also told in another place to leave the Egyptian leaven behind, to sort of cut ties from their past and not let that spread into their future. But this leaven, as Jesus says, is the kingdom. The kingdom is like leaven that a woman puts into three measures of flour. She hides it in three measures of flour. Now, that's a lot of flour. Um, A measure would be about 12 cups from what we know. So three measures, sorry, not 12 cups. I misread that. 12 quarts. A measure would be about 12 quarts. So three measures would be something like nine gallons worth of flour. That is a big batch of dough. But again, that wasn't even unheard of, especially if she was preparing it for a feast or for guests. Actually, it's the same amount of flour that Sarah prepared in the book of Genesis for the the visitors, the messengers of God that came to visit. And it's the same amount of flour that Hannah prepared when she offered Samuel as a servant of the temple. So Jesus wasn't just throwing a number out here. This was something that happened. Women would take a large amount of flour and make a huge batch of dough and all kinds of bread from it. But the idea is that a little bit of that bread starter, just a little bit, was all that was needed to be kneaded into that enormous lump. And then it would spread through the whole thing. And it would change the whole thing. Because you know what she would use the next day as her bread starter? A little piece of that dough from the day before. It would work through the whole thing until the whole lump was permeated and risen. And so it is with the kingdom. It has small and hidden beginnings. That's what Jesus said that this woman took and hid a little bit of leaven in this large lump of dough until it all had risen. The kingdom has small and hidden beginnings. In fact, it was hidden for centuries, but now it is permeating and working through the world. Consider this. When Jesus was on the earth, he had, for most of his time, 12 close followers. One of them fell away. By the end of his ministry and his ascension, at his ascension, there were 120 people there. Now, that wasn't everybody who followed him, But 120 people is not a mega congregation by any means. But quickly, though, we see the spread. At the Sermon on Pentecost, we read in Acts that over 3,000 people believed at one time. And then a little later in Acts 4, another 5,000 people believed at one time. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 17, those on the outside called the disciples the ones who had turned the world upside down with their message. Now, we spoke last week about how God's kingdom and his message has spread throughout all the world. There are believers in every corner of the globe. But 
we have to be a little bit honest and say that in our culture, we're in a bit of a dry season. We should pray for revival among believers and the spread of the gospel here in our country. It is changing, no doubt, from what it once was. And not just politically, that's, that's the result of the change. That's not the change. The change is that we're in a dry season of God's kingdom here. But we shouldn't be fooled because the gospel is still spreading like wildfire in other parts of the world. And much of it, much of it is in places where the believers can't even publicly profess their faith. Yet the gospel is spreading like an underground fire. The kingdom is growing. And in some senses, it's still hidden as it grows. And it will continue to grow. Until one day, that passage in Revelation that we read is the result. People from every nation, tribe, and language will be praising and glorifying God. That's the promise that Jesus gives with these two little parables. But let's go on. Skip down to verse number 44. We move from growth to value, from growth to value. The growth in those two parables was from very small to very large. It was permeating from just a little bit to spread throughout the entirety. And here we see its, its value, but we see a value, again, that is, that is unexpected or a value that is hidden. Look at verse 44 again. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, this is another short parable with really one major point. It also has a tie to the last one we read because in that one, the woman hid a little bit of leaven in three measures of flour. And here the kingdom of heaven is compared to a treasure that was hidden in a field. Now, everyone likes a good buried treasure story. You may watch movies about it, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, all kinds of fantasies and tales about buried treasure. And uh, certainly buried treasure does exist. But interestingly, in Jesus' day, it would have been far more, uh, far more common than we would even imagine because there were no banks or, or safety deposit boxes or safes. So keeping your goods safe, something that you wanted to keep but didn't need for a while, well, that was only as good as how well you could hide it. And uh, so people often did hide treasure underground and bury it. And the, the rule was that if you found a treasure, you became the rightful owner of it. But there was one caveat to that. If you found the treasure while you were working for somebody else, well, then it was actually the property of the person you were working for at the time. So the only way for somebody who was a servant or a slave who found a treasure to actually secure it was to buy the whole property, and then everything there was yours. Now, here in this parable is a man working in a field, and if he's working in a field, you would assume that he's not the rich man. He's probably a common man, but as he's working, he stumbles across a treasure that he wasn't looking for. And we could all imagine the emotion of that scene. What is this? What do I do? This is incredible. It's, it's life-changing. Nobody else knows about it. What, what do I do? So he makes a plan. He, he buries the treasure back. He finishes work. And he went immediately to work selling everything that he had. 
just so he could scrounge enough to buy that field. Now notice one important element. Jesus says that he does this in his joy. In his joy, he goes and sells everything and buys that field. He joyfully becomes incredibly poor for a little while, selling every asset just to own one field. Typically, that would have been a foolish move. But in this case, he was wise as could be. That brings a couple stories to mind. One is about myself, and one is a story I've heard, but I have no idea if it's true. But it's still interesting, so I'll tell both of them. The story about myself is when I was probably seven or eight years old, I remember going on a family trip with my parents and my brothers and sister to Maine. And on the way back through to Vermont, we stopped, might have been in in New Hampshire somewhere, North Conway or something. And we went to a place where there were all these outlet stores. And I had taken, you know, my life savings at that time on this trip, which was probably $40. And I had spent 20 of that in Maine. And I had 20, I remember I had a $20 bill left in my pocket when we were at these stores. Well, We were in one particular store. I was with my older brother, Josh, and uh, he was buying something. I think he bought a hat or something. And I was with him at the cash register, and I saw at that cash register a wallet. And I had remembered thinking at that time, you know what? I don't have a wallet. It'd be pretty handy. I have this $20. I've got to keep it somewhere. Well, you know how much that wallet cost? $20, surprisingly enough. And there was no tax in New Hampshire, so I had just the right amount of money. So in my joy, I bought that wallet. And then I realized, I've got nothing to put in here. (laughs) I've got an empty wallet, and I've got no job. So for a while, I carried around that empty wallet, and I, I don't know, I may have had my mom make a copy of my Social Security card or something so I could put something in there. But I just remember that instant feeling of emptiness, like I just spent $20 on the thing that I thought was going to hold the $20 that I spent. So in that case, it wasn't a great investment. Uh, I didn't really need it. It was a wasted purchase. In fact, my mom probably scolded me for even buying it, um, if I remember correctly, but either here nor there. But another thing that goes along with that, as I was thinking, is a man told me once that he went into a bookstore, one of these used bookstores that has thousands of books and many of these old books, and he was leafing through an old copy of something, something that was hadn't been published for hundreds of years. And as he was leafing through it, he found a lot of cash hidden between the leaves of the book. Now, that that's not totally uncommon. Sometimes people do that. They'll hide cash in their books and put it on their library in case of an emergency. Well, he bought that book, and I think it was 10 or $20, and he gained the benefit from it. Somehow he must have hidden the cash from the owner of the store. I don't know how honest that was. And again, I don't know if the story is true. But it kind of illustrates that idea that sometimes we buy things that have more value than what we even pay for them. In the case of this man in the parable, he spent everything and not just his liquid resources. He liquidized everything to buy one field, which would have seemed foolish, except for the treasure. And we'll say more about that, but let's read the final one. Verse number 40. Five, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, this story has the same idea, but it's a little bit different because in the parable of the hidden treasure, the man wasn't looking for treasure. At least it doesn't say he was. That's the idea. He stumbled across it. 
But this man was looking for treasure. He just didn't expect to find the treasure that he found. He had some experience with treasure already. He was a merchant. He bought and sold things for a living. This merchant probably knew his pearls. And pearls were some of the most valuable items and gems in that day. It's no wonder why the book of Revelation speaks of the New Jerusalem as having gates that are made of a single pearl. That would have been an image in that day of riches beyond compare. Well, this man probably knew his pearls, but on this day, he met his final pearl, so to speak. A pearl so great that he sold everything else to get it. Which is an amazing thought, because as a merchant, he would have been a wealthy man. And not only that, but he probably had other pearls in his possession that he would have sold to get this one. Now, both men in these parables sold everything for the value of the treasure that they found. They both became, for a moment, very poor in one sense to become very rich in another sense. And we find here this idea that forsaking all for the treasure of Christ and his kingdom is like finding a hidden treasure that's worth exceedingly more than the asking price. Now, we should be careful to note that Jesus is not teaching that we have to sort of buy ourselves into the kingdom. Not at all. We enter the kingdom of God, as John tells us in John 3, by being born again. That's how it's explained. We enter the kingdom by grace through the saving power of God. But there is a sense in which when we are believers and followers of Jesus, we are told that the price of being a faithful follower is often high. Now, we haven't gotten here yet. We've seen teachings like this. But in Matthew 16, Jesus talks about this very thing. He tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? That's the operative question. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What is it worth? Paul answered that question in a certain sense in Philippians 3 when he wrote this. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss, as dung for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And that's sort of the question that this parable, these parables beg of us. Do we treasure the kingdom? Do we treasure specifically Jesus Christ this much? Do we treasure him beyond any earthly thing? Beyond our securities? Beyond our wealth and possessions? Beyond our careers and our goals and our dreams? Beyond our comforts and even our friends and family? The kingdom is of incredible value, inquantifiable value, sell everything just to get it value. 
It is worth everything, according to scripture. That is the testimony of Jesus. That's the testimony of the apostles, that following the Lord is worth everything. There may be days when it seems like you're taking a loss for following the Lord. But in the end, we're promised that we will consider everything else as loss compared to the glory of God's kingdom and the joy that comes with it. Just think of that picture. The man in the field, he sold everything in his joy to buy that one field. Now, I'm sure that there were possessions, which for a moment he looked at and he said, this is going to hurt a little bit to get rid of this. I've had this for a very long time. This has incredible intrinsic value to me. This was from my grandfather, or this is something that that I received from my mother who's no longer with me. I'm sure that there were moments where he said, this is going to hurt a little bit. But overall, in his joy, he sold everything for that one treasure of incomparable worth. And that is the picture of following Christ, of being a, a, a citizen of his kingdom, is that everything else, though though casting it off may hurt for a moment. The joy that comes with it is incomparable. Countless stories could be told of missionaries who have given up everything to cross the world and serve the Lord. Just this week, I sat down with Daniel and Rebecca Miller. They were here for a visit for just about an hour and talked to them about the process of them going to language school in Texas and all the things they're going to have to do and, and the things they're going to have to change and the, and the challenges and the shifts. And, uh, but there was just this sense that this is worth it. It's worth it. And it is worth it. What does forsaking all for the treasure of Christ look like? I can't answer that question specifically for you. I don't know God's plan for your specific life. It may look like forsaking certain plans that it may look like and usually does it usually looks like forsaking unrighteousness and sin it may look like forsaking some of your money think of the merchant and the pearl he knew his pearls uh, you might imagine that he was someone who is somewhat of a, a religious seeker or or maybe a religious or a wise man he was seeking for treasures of wisdom or even treasures of truth. But in the kingdom, he found one treasure that surpassed every other treasure of wisdom and truth that he had ever come across. Paul talks this way as he prayed for the believers in Colossians 2. He prayed that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, to reach the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's interesting that Paul prays for that, that kind of encouragement, that the believers would have an assurance and understanding of Christ and the riches of Christ, because in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We ought to pray that way for our brothers and sisters. We ought to pray that way for ourselves. We ought to pray that, that we would see Christ and his kingdom as this treasure that is beyond compare. 
toward the end of the week, I began to think of, of some questions that we could put on rubber on the road and apply this a little bit. There are many, but here are just a few as we close. Are we too distracted to take notice of the beauty and value of Christ and his kingdom? The answer is, at least for me, often yes. Which leads me to ask, what are those distractions? And are they worth it? Another one. Do we take the long view of the kingdom? The man who saw the treasure in the field sold everything. That may have even meant his home. He may have become homeless to get that field, which probably didn't seem very good. But he had the long view in mind because he knew the treasure was worth far more. Do we take the long view of following Christ? There may be sacrifices in the moment that seem painful, but in the long run, is it worth it? Another one. How much does the idea of instant gratification skew our perspective of value and worth? We live in an age where instant gratification is everything. I joked about Amazon at the beginning of the sermon, but it's, it's quite something. You can order about anything in the world and have it on your doorstep in a day or two. And we get accustomed to that, so much so that when it takes three days, we start to get a little irritated and wonder what's going on. How does that kind of thinking permeate not just our consumer mentality, but our mentality of, of eternal things? Because following Jesus isn't an instant gratification deal. It's not. Now, there are certainly immediate benefits in things that we do experience now, like peace and joy and hope. And we experience certain things like restoration and reconciliation now. But much of it is a struggle in the moment. How does the idea of instant gratification creep into our thinking about the value of Christ and his kingdom? We could take that a step further. How does it creep into our relationships? We're taught by the Lord Jesus to have right relationships. Is it worth the work to us? Because anybody with any kind of relationship knows that it doesn't happen immediately and it doesn't happen automatically. There are sacrifices. There are, uh, there are painful conversations. There are, there are apologies that are hard to make. There are, there are conversations that you never want to have, but... Is it worth it? Or would we rather have just instant gratification? How does that idea affect our work ethic? And I don't just mean at our job, but just in life in general. Are we willing to sacrifice for what Jesus tells us is far more valuable than the effort we put in? A couple more. What is one thing that you couldn't imagine giving up for the sake of Christ. And with that one thing in mind, what does that tell you about how we need to reevaluate our thinking? Now, everything is in context, of course. We're told to love and cherish our family and our neighbors, and we're told to love one another and, and treat each other well. So uh, I'm not saying that you should just despise everything and have a cantankerous attitude. But if called to do so for the sake of Christ, 
What is one thing that you could not imagine saying no to for the purpose of saying yes to following that calling? You don't have to answer that in this moment, but think about it. I have to think about it. And finally, if God's kingdom is to be seen as a beautiful treasure and a shelter and a safe haven for the nations to come into, how does that change our thinking about our role as members of that kingdom and how we represent it? Do we represent it as the treasure? Or is it a drudgery for others to look at us and watch us follow our Lord? Overall, as we read these parables, though, uh, the idea is that we should be encouraged. And I think he gave this to his disciples for them to be encouraged. Because in one sense, these parables are prophecies of Jesus about the success and the eternal value of what God is doing in the world. And we could say this, God is working. He is advancing, so to speak. He is moving. The Lord is the king who will reign forever. We are privileged to have entered that kingdom, a kingdom that far exceeds in beauty and value any richness of any other kingdom. Our king is the wisest and sweetest sovereign in existence. And while other kingdoms spread by force or by the sword, The kingdom of the Lord spreads and permeates and moves through grace and mercy, through love and truth, through the hearts of men and women like you and me. Nothing can compare and nothing will compare for all of eternity.